Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 159, The Constitutional Convention, part 3, The Connecticut Compromise. Last time out, we looked at the start of the 1789 Constitutional Convention and James Madison's Virginia Plan. The Virginia Plan managed to secure agreement on a number of major points, such as the National Congress having the power to directly raise taxes and military forces, and to stop the states from independently pursuing commercial policies. However, there was considerable pushback. A group of northern states, particularly Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, and Delaware, put together an alternative proposal, which has been termed the New Jersey Plan. Submitted to Congress by William Patterson of New Jersey on June 15, 1787, it consisted of nine articles which I'll summarise. 1. The Articles of Confederation needed to be modified to adapt to the crises of the 1780s, rather than being completely replaced with a new constitution. 2. The new Congress should have the power to raise revenue from import duties and stamps to regulate commerce. 3. Congress could collect taxes, which would be distributed to the states based on population, counting free citizens and inhabitants, and free-fifths of enslaved people, though only with the consent of a proportion of states. It's worth noting the exact phrasing of this. Quote, Authorised to make such requisitions in proportion to the whole number of white and other free citizen and inhabitants of every age, sex and condition, included those bound to servitude for a term of years, and three-fifths of all other persons, not comprehended in the foregoing description, except Indians not paying taxes. End quote. 4. Congress would elect the National Executive, which would consist of multiple people, those serving in the executive would only be able to hold the office for one term and not be able to hold another office while they were in the executive and for a period after. An individual executive could be removed by Congress if a majority of executives voted to apply it. The executives would appoint federal officers who were not explicitly appointed by someone else, direct the military, but not command troops as a general. 5. There should be a supreme tribunal as a federal judiciary, appointed by the executive, which would handle impeachment of federal officers, an appeal court for cases involving ambassadors, piracy felonies at sea, cases involving foreigners, trade issues, taxation issues, and foreign treaties. They would also be unable to hold any other office while on the supreme tribunal, and for a period afterwards. 6. Acts and treaties passed by Congress would be the highest form of law in the United States, and the federal executive would have the power to force compliance with Congress. 7. There should be a way to add states to the Union. 8. There should be a consistent rule for naturalisation across every state. 9. A citizen could be prosecuted in any state by the laws of the state where the crime was committed. This makes quite clear the primary concern of the smaller states. They did not fear a powerful central government, although the diluted executive is certainly interesting. The smaller states were concerned about equality of the states, something which would be vital in protecting their interests as the country expanded westwards. They didn't want the large states to grow larger and larger. 
The convention listened to the New Jersey plan, and understood the concerns that drove it. James Wilson of Pennsylvania spent the next few days exploring the differences between the two plans, and feared the single assembly of the Congress in the New Jersey plan, saying that it invited legislative despotism. On June 17th, Hamilton decided to propose his own form of government, an elective monarchy, but this didn't really do anything other than bore the other delegates. Of more use was Madison's speech on June 18th, when he pointed out that the West was sparsely populated and the new states that would be created would be weak under a system based on population, but would automatically have an equal say as the old states if all states voted equally. This made the smaller states hesitate. When a vote was finally held, only New Jersey and New York supported the New Jersey plan. The convention returned to working on the Virginia plan, and discussion focused on the nature of Congress. New Jersey, New York and Delaware opposed the bicameral legislature to try and exact a compromise. The convention managed to agree to a two-chamber legislature and moved on to deciding how the chambers would be composed. A motion was made by Charles Coatsworth Pinckney of South Carolina to have the lower chamber chosen by the state legislatures, but this was quickly defeated, and instead the Virginia plan of the people electing the lower house was accepted. However, agreement on the second house was much harder to achieve. The large states couldn't understand why the smaller states were so concerned. Madison used examples from history, such as pointing out that Rome and Carthage fought each other, rather than working together to fight smaller states. It was unlikely that an alliance would form between Massachusetts, Pennsylvania and Virginia to dominate the smaller states. The small states, similarly, couldn't understand why the large states didn't appreciate their concerns. When they had formed the United States, it was explicitly a confederacy. Separate states were the source of sovereignty, and they could lend power to a central point, but they were separate. The confederation should be viewed as a treaty between separate nations. It wouldn't be right for some members of the Union to sacrifice their equal say in the Union, which they currently had. This approach made no sense to Madison, who argued they were making a government for people, not for the states. A compromise was offered by Roger Sherman of Connecticut. One chamber would have a proportional representation, and one would have equal representation to the states. This has been called the Great Compromise, or the Connecticut Compromise. The small states felt this was an adequate concession on their side, but the large states would not go along with it. Tempers started to boil over. Gunning Bedford of Delaware accused the larger states of behaving dictatorially, and threatened that the smaller states might look to foreign allies rather than work with the other states, which led to an explosion from Rufus King of Massachusetts. The states were unable to agree on this, but committed to continuing the convention. They would instead refer the matter to a grand committee, composed of one delegate from each of the states. The Grand Committee adopted the Connecticut Compromise, including its plan for how delegates would be elected to the lower house, one representative for every 40,000 inhabitants. This didn't make its way into the eventual constitution, but it's funny to note that if it did, the House of Representatives in 2022 would have something around 8,250 members. The proposal was taken back to the convention, 
where it received support from Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, George Mason of Virginia, and Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts. Notable defections. It was bitterly opposed by Madison, as well as Governor Morris of Pennsylvania. Morris actually said, quote, This country must be unified. If persuasion does not unite it, the sword will. End quote. The matter was instead spun off to more committees, where an interesting effect started to take place. Members of the Grand Committee, who did not support the Connecticut Compromise, felt obliged to when the committee they were on supported it. As more and more members of the Convention found themselves in committees that decided to support various aspects of the Compromise, they felt bound to as well. Elbridge Gerry probably spoke for most when he said he preferred this than no accommodation at all. As the delegates got closer and closer to an agreement, the rhetoric changed. Gone was Madison observing the interactions of Rome and Carthage. Instead, the focus turned to how many delegates each state would have in the lower house, and how they expected population growth to affect the various states. Jerry and King of Massachusetts proposed that newer states would need to have smaller representation than the original 13, but this was roundly defeated. In the end, Governor Morris of Pennsylvania finally managed to break the deadlock. He proposed that representation in the lower house be proportional to direct taxation, thus based on population, with enslaved peoples counting as three-fifths of free citizens. Many were profoundly uncomfortable with this compromise. Morris would later regret it. But with this in place, a vote could finally take place on July 16th. Five small northern states voted for the compromise. Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, New Hampshire, and New Jersey. Pennsylvania, Virginia, South Carolina, and Georgia voted against. Massachusetts had a split vote. New York couldn't vote as Lansing and Yates had gone home. And North Carolina decided to support it. So that was it. The matter was decided. The Connecticut Compromise had been achieved. To quote Hugh Brogan in The Penguin History of the United States, Quote, this was the Great Compromise. Without it, the Constitution would not have been agreed, and it was a price worth paying. Yet, essentially, it was a price paid by the future to the past. Major political conflict has never, since 1787, raged between large states and small states. So the constitutional protection has been neither a help nor a hindrance. Madison foresaw this at the time, he insisted that the real disputes would in future arise between the regions, or sections, between North and South, say, but he too acquiesced in the agreement. End quote. This is the point at which we'll end things for this week. Join me next time, when the Constitutional Convention moves on to deciding other matters, as the alliance between the small states and big states is broken, and we move on to new dynamics. Thanks for listening, I'll see you then. 